Welcome to the Twice Over Movies Podcast. If you're new here, check out our website at thetwiceover.com to get a better understanding of how we do our movie reviews. Our goal is to provide insight on elements of a movie which you consider more or less important so that our scores are never misleading. Remember to follow us at the Twice Over on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and support us on Patreon. This is the spoiler alert, everyone. We're going to discuss the movie fully. Let's just go right into it. So, um, yeah, here's what I thought the main, the overarching thing is um, how you handle people who are, who, who you don't know, who are foreign to you. And though what Guillermo del Toro wants us to do is love what you don't know, love what isn't foreign, what is foreign, embrace it and protect it. And that's with all of the political undertones in this movie. There's some civil rights mm-hmm. stuff. There's some gay rights stuff. And none of it is overpowering, but when it does come, there's a clear stance. Even though these people look different than you, even though they look, uh, they, uh, you know, they may be different, but there's beauty there. And you need to embrace it. And you need to love what you don't know. And you need to protect what you don't know. It's the civil rights stuff, the gay rights stuff, as well as, you know, the, the what do you want to, what do you want to reference? The asset? The creature? Uh, no, I think asset's more demeaning. Yeah, creature the creature? also is kind of demeaning, but like. What do we say? The uh, mermaid, merman, the merman. <laughs> the merman the uh, imdb has it listed as uh amphibian man okay the amphibian man is different completely foreign and um one of the things that uh strickland uh, basically the main villain in the movie um he says you know he's talking to the he's talking to zelda who's one of the cleaners of this facility this top secret government scientist facility Mm-hmm. And he says, y- you may think that thing looks human, but it's it stands on two legs, doesn't it? But we're creating the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? And Zelda's response is, I don't know what the Lord looks like, sir. And he says, he looks human, like me, or even you, maybe a little bit more like me. <laughs> yeah. So that is, you know, that statement kind of says it all. Um, he's the villain. His reaction or his thought process here says a lot about him and it says a lot about the kind of thing that Guillermo del Toro um, and other writers of this movie, it's not just him, um, are trying to kind of speak out against. And her reaction to what he says, she says, I don't know what the Lord looks like, sir. That's very, I mean, that's kind of telling of the way that he wants us to, the way that he wants us to act and the way that he wants, uh, he believes that we should be viewing things. Yeah, like a humble approach. or A, a humble, humble approach, just because we don't know what somebody looks like. Just because we're not familiar with somebody or with a certain thing doesn't mean it's not beautiful. Is it in that same exchange that he says uh, the creature is like ugly as sin? I don't believe so. I mean, so. he does mention that. I mean, like I was going to bring that up anyway because of it just signifies his superiority complex. And also with the exchange that you mentioned where he says he looks uh, like me, maybe even you, but a little more like me because he's white, he's a man. Right. Um, so he clearly has this superiority complex. Uh, he's a misogynist. Um, he's clearly late racist. You said that Guillermo del Toro like wants us to like love the unknown or the other. I think it's more just don't have a superiority complex. Like just because it's different doesn't mean you are better. I think that's like the bigger point here. I mean, yeah, you can go either way. I think it's probably both of them. You know, I mean, it's not. I don't think it's one or the other. It is, yeah. It's, it's, it's both. both of them. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I think he did it well enough. I think he did it like really well that it wasn't. Um, nothing was overpowering. 
And uh, it's, again, themes are always going to be cliche. <laughs> it's always going to be. So, you know, I mean, it is kind of cliche, but that's fine. It's, it's the theme category. That's the whole category. So, yeah, that was, that was my, was that my highest score? That was my highest score, was, was the themes in this movie. I thought it was going to be the narrative. When I first watched this movie, I, I watched it in theaters when it came out. Mm-hmm. And I was such a big fan of Pan's Labyrinth that when I saw the previews for this, like the year before or something, I, in a, another movie, I was like, I, I can't wait till this movie is going to come out. I'm going to see it the first day it comes out. And I did. And I think that I was so, I was so fanboyed out <laughs> by Del Toro that I left with like this inflated view of the movie. When I watched it again recently, uh, I had way, I mean, I just didn't think it was as good as when I had first seen it. I don't know if you had that same experience. Well, I only watched it once, which was a day ago. Right, <laughs> so that's true, yeah. I, I I did like the movie. It was better than I actually thought it was going to be because, again, my, for whatever reason, I mean, again, I mentioned I'm not into fantasy movies, but for whatever reason, the premise of this movie or what i read or heard about it before like it just didn't entice me enough to want to go watch it um so coming out yesterday after watching it i was like oh this is actually better than i thought it would be but i did i wrote this down did you i mean there's a lot of parallels to pan's labyrinth here but clearly for me pan's labyrinth is like the better movie the more enjoyable movie Mm -hmm. Do, do you feel the same way that's a good question because I, as soon as we finished this movie, right, like, because I, I watched it two days ago and I asked my wife the same thing and, uh, you know, I think she liked Pan's Labyrinth better. I don't know. I'm kind of between the two. I love certain scenes in this movie and I'm just so Such attached as? to those scenes. Um, yeah, I guess we can go into those. I mean, um, one scene that really, really sticks out to me, there was, and it's not like, you know, it's not as many as I thought there were going to be. <laughs> But one thing that really sticks out to me is when she's telling um, Giles to sign what she's saying. Um, you remember that scene, of course? Yeah. Yeah, her, her performance when she does that is kind of one of my favorite mm-hmm. acting performances of anything. Because there's so many things. There are so many things at play here. You know, first this like when she's trying to she's trying to convince him to like to help, to help her, uh, yeah, to help her extract. I don't know what would you say to help her get the thing to help the creature escape. Yeah, I guess so. The creature didn't really do anything, so he didn't really escape. But um, whatever it was. So so what, so here we could talk about the first thing that uh, of this scene. They didn't subtitle this part, and this is all signed. Yeah, only when he talked that they did they. I mean, that's what you heard. And they did that for uh, you know they did that for good reason. I don't. I yeah. didn't pick up on that the first time uh, that I watched it. Usually throughout the movie, whenever she is saying anything, she's saying it through sign language. And there is a subtitle for her sign. Up to this point, everything has been signed. And even when she's telling him, she tells him, repeat back what I say. That is subtitled. And he says, okay, okay. When she starts her main message, there's no longer any, there's no longer any subtitles. And so here's what, I, here's what they did. If they had put subtitles there, the audience would be way too focused reading the subtitles rather than watching her act her butt out. Because what the audience does see when they do see her acting the acting out her signs, they see how like you see how a mute girl expresses love, concern, you know, urgency, all at the same time. 
even down to like the mm-hmm. sounds that come from her mouth whenever she is like really really passionate yeah. about it and she's trying to just get get him to keep his attention she, the, even even just the sounds that come from her mouth i mean her facial expressions the um, you can just tell like she's desperate to keep this being that she has like fallen for she's trying to keep him alive because of how he looks at her with such adoration and she's kind of you you know you see her recalling that you see her like you're seeing her search for words she's not just it's not a script she's searching for the right words yeah, to yeah. make you know and so it's such an interesting scene and she's she's responding to how yeah. uh, Jaws is like repeating it back so like like the frustration that builds up when he's just yeah. like i got to go <laughs> I gotta and you go. see it yeah you see it in that piece of dialogue i'm going to call it more than anything that she's kind of been like incomplete her whole life she even says that and everybody mm-hmm. looks at her as having a def- deficiency you know everybody must have just been like oh she's yeah. mute oh and sh- they treat her differently the creature well i shouldn't say that the amphibian man looks at her like she can never be anything but perfect you know and she's so natural with with yeah. her sign or at least it seems i don't know anything about sign language but it seems like she's doing it so naturally that she's very fluent in that even though the actress herself can and does speak i don't know if she has any i'm interested to see if the actress um does have any sign experience because she did such an extraordinary job yeah, i have no idea i did see i did see like something about how she uh studied a lot of like chaplain so that's another thing i was gonna and, yeah you know some silent film actors to like prepare for the role but i'm not sure anything about the actual signing i mean i'm sure she probably learned it i don't know what her experience was interesting though. You, you said that she see i didn't i never read up on a movie so she studied chaplin a lot mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean well for this role specifically her reactions throughout the movie outside of like you know outside of that part her reactions to like when giles is talking to her about the guy that he likes at the shop or about the about the movies like the um when shirley temple he's talking about her and how good she did her reactions were very 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 similar to chaplin so that makes perfect sense she does a really really good job that's why i mean her acting is just incredible and i if she did not was not in this movie I w- I would have watched it still, but I would not have liked it. I would not have chosen it to speak about. Yeah, she she definitely makes it. Yeah, I don't, and another favorite scene of mine, and I, I mean this is so like and this is probably kind of typical of me, but as soon as they do make love, her and that uh and the amphibian man, mm-hmm. when she's in the bus and there's that French music playing, I'm just a sucker for French music, I guess French, <laughs> French female voice like French female vocals, that's playing and she's tracing the the water on the bus window oh yeah that was a good scene i loved that scene it's so beautiful it's such it a is, yeah it's a great transition too it's a great transition and it's it so her sense of like curiosity and her sense of wonder the way that she falls i mean she's so charming um even the way that she looks at the amphibian man with such like adoration there's even some you might even be like a little lustful like those scenes where she, when they're falling for each other, those are some of my favorite scenes as well. Outside of those, I don't have a lot of. There weren't a lot of scenes that I really loved, but I loved those scenes so much. I, I liked. Uh, I really liked the beginning when we first watch her go to work, like her midnight shift, where it's like dark out and you have like the neon lights or just the city lights in general. I thought the camera movement there was really good. I mean, I assume it was just like 
it was like a tracking shot. Yeah, it was mostly stationary, from what I remember. Well, not that. That's what I'm saying. Not this first scene where you see her leaving her apartment, getting on the bus, um, like, and then you just get the city in the back. Otherwise, I mean, like, there's not. I mean, I gave the aesthetics a 90, but I didn't have like specific scenes that I thought were super beautiful. I mean, there are a couple. The very end when they're in the water, like, which is I think like the poster for the movie as well, mm-hmm. like the cover shot. I thought that was amazing. I thought the the scene in the in their bathroom when she fills it up with water mm-hmm. was pretty awesome too. I mean, there's a lot of small like I just like the entire feel of the movie that it gave me uh, through the aesthetics. So let's talk. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the aesthetics here a little bit. Um, I mean, yeah, there are those scenes that we talked about, and I think that those are again. Uh, you know how we we've talked about this before. Sometimes there's these images that the director or, you know, the cinematographer has in their minds and they're like, I want to put that in this movie and I'm going to find a way mm-hmm. even if it doesn't make sense. So I think that that's kind of, I mean, those are a couple of those scenes with the when they, she fills the yeah. bathroom up with water. That makes no realistic sense. That floor would have collapsed. Obviously, but does it, <laughs> the movie's a fantasy. That floor would have completely collapsed. <laughs> but it's a good scene, right? It looks nice. Why it's do you draw like the interesting line there, though? Who cares? No, I don't. I, I don't. That's what I'm saying. I, I don't. And that's not... I love those scenes. And I, I think that the, so the tone that they're mm-hmm. going for yeah, exactly. is really good. I mean, I, what, I got, what I got in my notes is that there's some dull tones with some bright colors, notably red. There's kind of some orange in there, but there's a lot of, like, neon stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So I think it's an interesting... It was an interesting color scheme. Like, everything has its own color scheme. Her apartment... Yeah, Jao's apartment has like the very orangey, popish color. Yeah, it's like sort of brown, you know. And then the her workplace then, is like um, the gray, green. It's like nasty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's, um, I mean, there's, yeah. I, I think they did a really good. I and I, you know, I'm. He spends a lot of time and he spends a lot of money on set design and set yeah, stuff. You know, even if you look at Penn's Labyrinth, I mean, it's kind of the same. It's not as much, I would say. Is this this is this is probably a little bit more um, on the production scale than Pan's Labyrinth is, but you know, I think I think they did some of that stuff really well. well yeah. Speaking about Pan's Labyrinth again, I was gonna mention this. I mean, the ending reminded me very much of Pan's Labyrinth when she gets shot on the dock and she's laying down. It's so eerily similar to when the girl in Pan's Labyrinth gets shot, and like her sure blood is. drips down to like the other world. And the same with this, right, where she is resurrected or alive again in the water now with her scars becoming gills. And she's, I guess, an amphibian woman at this point. Um, but yeah, it yeah. Ha- had very similar endings. That's why, I mean, that was the first thing I thought about Pan's Labyrinth. But I want to mention something else, too. So there's a lot of religious like connotations or uh, references. When we first see the theater in her building that she lives above of is playing a biblical movie from the 50s or 60s. I'm not sure what the movie was. Um, And then Mm. with Strickland, he mentions God a lot. He mentions the Bible a lot. He mentions Delilah and Samson's story in the Bible because Zelda's middle name is Delilah. And he even says, like you mentioned earlier, the whole image of God. And then at the very end, when the amphibian man kills Strickland, he actually looks at him and says, you are God. And he gets killed. And I don't know. I just found that pretty like, interesting. I was thinking about it. Not that I have any answers about any or anything that I understand what he was or what Guillermo del Toro wanted us to get from it. 
But I just thought it was interesting, like how much he did mention, I guess, religion or God in general. Interesting. So think about this. The, the other time he does mention God outright is when he is talking to Zelda. And we talked about this already when he said the Lord looks mm-hmm. like me, right? He doesn't look like that guy. He doesn't look like that creature. The Lord looks like me. And the Lord is supposed to be like, you know, what we're working, what we're trying to achieve, what we're working towards, what is good. And everything else is, you know, what, is not, what the Lord isn't is not what we should pay attention to. We should pay attention to what the Lord looks like, which is a white man. And then at the end when he says, oh, you are God. Right? So that's kind of bringing the story sort of full circle. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of it, but, you know, that's kind of the idea there. Like a realization? Right. It's like a realization. Like, oh, you know what? You are God. Meaning you are something that should be cherished and you are beautiful and you are something that you're not, you know. You're not evil, basically. But I, that's what I got from that, pretty much. Um, I'm not sure who's doing the narration in this movie. It starts with a narration and it ends with a narration. I wasn't sure if it was Giles or... That's what it sounded like. I assumed like. it was him, but I don't think it's like clear. It's so- it's It sounded like him. And also, so I, we can go back to the other point a little bit. But while we're on the narration, mm-hmm. I thought it was completely useless. That beginning piece of narration... He talks of a, he's like, well, where do I s- <laughs> tell the story? I, let's talk, maybe I could talk about a city near the coast that's far from everything. Baltimore is close to a lot of stuff. I don't know what the hell they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, Baltimore is and then they're talking about the part r- of the Northeast with Philly, Washington, D.C. It's close to a lot of yeah. stuff. Philly's not far. D.C.'s not far. There's stuff to do everywhere. Even in the 60s, D.C., it was if not anything, like... If anything, Baltimore was a there. bigger city back then than it is now. It was a bigger city. So, I see, like, I, I think that they just wrote stuff and didn't really put think it, thought I'm into sure it. They, they talk about the reign of a princess. Yeah. That really I mean, into. I thought that narration in the beginning, I did also feel it was pretty useless. But I think it was just there to create this, like, you know, like a fairy tale type... Uh, feel to the movie because uh, that's how like a fairy tale starts right with that type of narration yeah but i wish that it was more like something more substantial yeah i mean yeah i agree it didn't really add much to the movie i agree with that but the very end that 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 quote i mean the first thing i did after they mentioned that poem i'm like that's got to be roomy right like that has to be (laughs) i looked it up it's not well they don't like guillermo del toro just said yeah he got inspired from some islamic poetry that's how he came up with it. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, it's probably Rumi or someone, like one of his teachers or something, because clearly it sounded like he's talking about God. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it sounded like. I mean, yeah, you're you're right to go to clue in on the religious stuff. I don't think it's, again, it's not in your face. I think if there's a, okay, so there's a lot of stuff in this movie that if you really want to delve into, you probably mm-hmm. can, and I didn't. Like the film stuff, she lives right above a theater. Yeah. There's a movie playing. I don't know what movie it was. There were some titles on the thing. I don't remember what Mardi they were. Mardi Gras and something. I'm sure there's. So I'm sure there's something. Yeah, and then the and then the shows and movies that they're watching at Giles's apartment too, right? Right. I'm sure there's references to all kinds of stuff. Well, the Giles like apartment, all kinds of cinema. like the dancing. I just thought like, hey, that's a nice way for like for like the main character Eliza to I don't know see silent movies or see the dancing and seeing how she can communicate through music because she also likes music a lot right she plays music for the amphibian man when she goes to work um it's like another way for her to communicate I guess that's that's, I mean I didn't again I didn't think too much into it but that's what I picked up from it yeah I think it's 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's all really clever. If you want to look for that stuff and you're somebody who does look for Easter eggs and stuff, this is probably an amazing movie to do that kind of stuff because I know that there's a bunch of references. Yeah, especially for the movie stuff, I, I'm sure it's probably references for like Guillermo del Toro himself like in terms of homages that he's paying towards, uh, like, you know, right, his heroes. Right. All, all kinds of stuff. His heroes, even like there's a lot of stuff with like the French film scene, like old French film scene. You know, it's just kind of similar to even like Amelie sort of does the same thing. Her character is eerily similar to Amelie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're somebody who looks for that stuff, you know, this is probably a great movie. I personally don't. And I I know it's there, but I just kind of look for whatever the stuff that I do know. I don't think it's worth my time to sit there and look for Easter eggs. Uh, I mean, I, I find it fun to look it up after. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't pick up on most of the stuff on like a normal watch anyway. You're too busy just paying attention to the movie. You know, we talked yeah. about uh, Strickland. I actually had, he had some like funny moments or I guess weird moments that kind of tell you what kind of person he is. He had that one uh, spiel about uh, washing your hands either before or after using the bathroom. You don't do it twice. Yeah. When he is talking to Dimitri, Dr. Hofstetler, uh, when he's basically, you know, letting him die and he wants to get information out of him. He talks about candy and how he's a simple man and just likes his basic candy. He lets it sit for a while unless he's anxious and he bites into it. I'm like, those are some good lines. I like the writing in that, in those sections. Uh, see, yeah, I kind of disagree. I think, I think that they didn't spend enough time building this character up. The villain? Because, yeah, because, you know, like if you compare it to Pan's Labyrinth, the villain in that was amazing. I loved that villain. Mm-hmm. This dude, he's so prototypical. <laughs> There's not really much depth to his character other than the fact that he wants to he wants to achieve. And that's all we know about this guy. And everything else is so blah about him. And it's it's that's fine if that's what the character is, but they just didn't put much time into actually developing him. Yeah, I don't I mean, they put little things like, you know, even even that scene where you're talking about where he's kind of uh interrogating uh, Dr. Hofstetler. Mm-hmm. It's not a natural transition to when he does talk about the candy. <laughs> it comes out of nowhere. It's not natural uh, at all. I don't think all. it doesn't come out of nowhere because we see him eating the candy earlier in the movie too. Yeah, I know. But I think that it's – he's because he, at that point, he's sort of he's sort of in a rush to find who did it because he's racing against time. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting there and then he's like – uh, he finds that time to sit there and talk about his candy thing, and he's just taking his time. It just, you know, it's not at all natural. I do. I didn't believe it. it didn't seem to me. I least. do agree with you that his character in general had lacked some depth. Uh, he was just a prototypical villain. Um, he played the role well, though I thought. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a little shallow for sure. That's why those little moments that we did have of him. Just giving a little insight into who he was, I found that interesting. Again, he's not—he's not meant to be the main focus of the movie, but I think the way that they treated his character is the way they treated a kind of a lot of the movie, which is which was what ultimately became a huge turnoff for me the second time that I watched it. Like I can go on for probably, literally, I can probably go on for twenty minutes of little details that made zero sense. That in a movie like this really just shouldn't be happening. They've been, he, they've been making this movie for a long Give time. Give me one example. Okay, I'll just start listing things off and you tell me when to stop. Okay. Uh, when they're cleaning, when they're in that thing, they're cleaning that big, huge space thing. 
Yeah. How are they two alone cleaning this one huge <laughs> space thing? There's nothing. When Zelda is cleaning it, there's nothing there. She's dusting an underside of something. When you're cleaning a fan, are you spending 20 minutes cleaning the underside of the no, fan see, or on I top of the fan? I see that as like, all right, they're trying to show us like where they work. It's setting the place. I, I understand. I understand, but there's no Cleedy cart next to them. They just included the scene because of the visual appeal. I'm wondering of them two being small and how big that thing is. You know, I, what I, I mean? was gonna wonder if you're gonna say anything about eggs. What does eggs have to do? with So the, the movie? E- I mean, the eggs is a kind of there's a sexual connotation there, and there's a lot of sexual yeah, imagery guess. throughout the whole movie. Because like we, so that's a little different. She's like masturbating yeah. to like the timer while cooking those the, eggs. The egg-shaped timer. Egg is kind of like you know, I mean. W- it's like sort of symbolizes women's sexuality. It's one of the symbols of women's sexuality. So really, that's, actually don't that's where that. the eggs. Is. Yeah, if you think about eggs, like I mean, yeah, I think of eggs. You know, okay, eggs, I think about fertilization. Ovaries, I guess fertilization, but also yeah, I mean I don't know how sexy that is. There. That's kind of like <laughs> it's, it's a little like anatomy there. It is even if you watch the way that she interacts with the with the egg when she gives it. Yeah, to him, very gentle time, and all that. She's kind of like seductively it. eating it, you know. So there is def- there's a, that's just more about the sexual imagery, and there's a lot of that. There really is a lot of the of that stuff in this movie. You know, the dude that played the amphibian man is the same one from Pan's Labyrinth. Like he does, he plays a creature in like every Guillermo del Toro movie. Really, his name is See, Doug Jones. He's got similar movements as the fawn. Yeah, from the Pan's fawn Labyrinth. exactly. Uh, let me see if I can pull it up. I was looking him up. I'm like, man, this dude, that's all he does is is these characters. From Indianapolis. Yeah, he plays the Pale Man and the Fawn in Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, really? And yeah, he's in Hellboy as well. Is he the Fawn? He, and he plays the Fawn as well? The same person? Yep, Fawn and the Pale Man. The Pale Man is the guy with oh. the eyes in his hands, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So he plays both of them. And he plays the Amphibian Man here. Interesting. So that's just one example. I mean, there's so many, dude. The head of security knows Zelda by name. When she, when they first, when we first see the creature, she's like yelling at the dude about so freely, like in the presence of scientists. That's not a, that's not a, like doesn't matter. That's not a big deal. Like how? And then when he interviews, when he brings them to interview three times, who interviews cleaners? Why? Why is he meeting with them all the time? He's asking them very personal questions. And it makes no sense. Why would he ever do that? You know what I mean? She brings a record player into that lab. <laughs> I, How did she hide the record player? Yeah, There's the record player one I actually thought about. I'm like, stuff. did she really bring a record player to her? Come on. Yeah. And then when they, so when, um, when that dude asked them to clean up, the head of security, Fleming, he comes to ask them to clean up. They're about to have dinner. Why them too? Like there's so many, there's full, this, this place is full of cleaning people. Who are all also having dinner? It brings just them two. Like it doesn't make any sense. But the emotional impact is greater with them doing it. Obviously, yeah, right? The story, it, story has to follow them. It makes so, sense to use them. That's why I don't have a big problem with it. Yeah, it's just it's not realistic. But again, I, and that's stuff that I really, really look for. I want things to be realistic. I don't want to see the process when I'm just watching a movie. I don't want to be able to see that they did away with certain details in order to make something happen and that's that's this whole movie 
all throughout the movie we see that. So. I I agree with you, but I mean I'm just gonna say it's probably a it's a time constraint. You gotta get the story going, or else it'll take yeah, forever. Yeah, it's not to, a terribly long movie. It's two hours. Yeah. you know what I mean. Imagine if, if they stretch it to two and a half. I think they could have they could have done a better job. If they made job, it I think two, and two and a half, half hours. do you really think? Like, I mean, I thought it was a slow. Oh yeah, let's talk about this because I said it was a little slow burn. And you seem kind of surprised at that. Like, yeah, I thought it was. So? I thought it was. No, I thought it was. It moved really fast. I thought it it moved quick. Like there, that's why I I didn't think it was as good as I thought it was originally. They didn't put enough time. I thought it moved too quick. There's one scene that's obviously very tense when they're kidnapping or kidnapping or take like helping. Oh yeah, we don't know what to say because he's not really escaping. But they're taking the amphibian man out of the. The government lab and right um like that specific scene i thought was very well done like it really creates like a very tense situation and it works out pretty well um otherwise though i can't think of another moment where i felt like i felt i mean it's not that i felt that it was slow but it is a slow movie like you if you're ready for it to move slowly like it's fine because not much is happening otherwise until that moment, right? Until they're trying to help him escape. Or even well, at the end more... when uh, Strickland is closing down on them, then I guess it gets a little, like, the fast pace at that moment. I guess compared to, so, the movies that we usually watch, you know, especially for this podcast, but for the movies that I, that I really like, the scenes are longer. That's kind of the thing. These scenes are really short. Yeah, really, really there's short. more edits so, here. Even when I'm, you know, before we do these podcasts, I always watch the movie another time just to just to focus on details, just to take notes and other little things. And when I'm forwarding through a movie, like when we did First Reformed, and I'm forwarding through, I'm not skipping any scenes just by going, you know, five minutes. When I went five minutes in this movie, I skipped a whole scene. Like, yeah, the scenes were really short, and that's what I mean. I, they didn't take the time to really develop meaningful scenes. Um, there's a couple in there, but I think they could they could have probably done a lot better. They could have done a lot more. But I think, you know, again, that probably comes to preference. If you don't have a great attention span. <laughs> well, not even that. I'm going to say, I mean, I I look for a lot of depth in a scene. I like slow scenes. So I didn't feel that way. I guess, you know, for I guess other people probably might feel feel the opposite so i see what you're saying so the difference is like you're saying the scenes are nice and short not nice in your opinion but they're short therefore it doesn't feel like a slow movie to you for right. me it's like yeah the scenes there are a lot of edits there's a lot of cuts um which means like the scenes themselves are short but what like the narrative the story from one scene to the next like doesn't necessarily move that's that's what i mean by slow i guess mm, that's true yeah i can see that yeah, and on second thought, man, I would definitely watch Pan's Labyrinth over this movie. It's definitely the better one. Yeah, dude, Hands when you down. mentioned the villain, I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, that freaking military commander or whatever. How good was, was that? He was scary as hell. Yeah, and that was a, I mean, that was a revolutionary movie. When they when that movie came out, there was no movie other movie like it. When this movie came out, it's so close to a lot of other movies. It borrows really heavily. So the originality isn't there as much as you know as Pan's Labyrinth was. Mm -hmm. And Pan's Labyrinth is a lot more palatable. You know, it's a lot easier to deal with because this it's kind of makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, she she has sex with a mermaid. You know, so. 
it's a and there's a lot of nudity in this movie so i mean it's just a lot more palatable it's a lot more universal themes and stuff like that it's a little bit more broad reaching in terms of audience and i think it's just a probably a better executed movie that being said i haven't seen the movie in a long time and i might i might find the same thing with details speaking of the ending though so Guillermo del Toro does I mean I would call it his signature at least from Pan's Labyrinth and this movie the, the the two best movies that he's made is that the ending is kind of ambiguous and he does such a good job with these ambiguous endings we kind of talked about it in First Reformed a little bit I don't think they did as good of a job this he makes he makes it so that it's literally 50-50 it can go either way whether the last that the main character dies or whether they're alive you don't exactly know in this movie because when she does sprout those gills and she is alive we don't know if that's real we don't know if that's fantasy she could have died same thing with pants labyrinth when that girl we don't yeah, know yeah. if what she's imagining it is if that's real or if that is just if that's imagination because she has a vivid imagination and in fact we don't know if the whole movie in pants labyrinth what i like is that he plays with imagination the entire movie. We don't know what's real and what's, what she's imagining. Yeah, yeah. Here, we're, there's no like I question that there was a creature or an amphibian right. man or something. Like, There's no denying that this existed at all. It's just, yeah, yeah, whether at the end she comes back to life and is an amphibian woman or not, that's, I guess, up in the air. But yeah, in Pan's Labyrinth, you could go back theoretically and be like, was the, any of it real at all? Or was she just escaping the world to avoid the harsh realities yeah so that's what he does play with you mentioned harsh reality and that's a really good it's a really good word he portrays an especially harsh reality he displays kind of like the word humans at their worst mm -hmm. and he softens it a little bit with real with the uh, um what would you call it fantasy so with fairy tale stuff so he that's his signature. I think he that's one of the reasons I think you should watch this movie. If you're looking for a female character who does a freaking amazing acting job for the most part, um who's very captivating, very charismatic, mm -hmm. um you know, who really grabs your attention, tugs at your heartstrings in moments, this is a great movie to watch. Otherwise, you could probably move on in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, I can't even say like, even though the story or like the yeah just the story of it right like uh falling in love the outsider all that stuff we talked about even though that's kind of relatively simple and universal it's still kind of hard to recommend because like you said you have moments that just will make you very uncomfortable and just might be a little too much for some people so it's hard to recommend easily i mean it's like it's like beauty and the beast though you know what i mean this is this is adult beauty and the beast this is beauty and the beast but with <laughs> yeah, reality, right? The but like Guillermo del Toro is a little more real about it because right. the creature doesn't become human to like love it. Yeah, and so actually, it's the opposite, right? She becomes yeah, true, she becomes creature. She becomes fish. It's an interesting take on it. I I mean I'm that's kind of that's one of the main parallels that I forgot to write down. But yeah, that's a clear thing. I mean, this is an adult, literally an adult fairy tale. This is Beauty and the Beast. Um, so if that makes you uncomfortable, <laughs> if if watching Disney Beauty and the Beast, but with adult um, themes and in real life with more sexual tones is uncomfortable for you, then, you know, this is probably not a good movie for you. If you're interested in it, by all means, go ahead and, uh, you know, watch it. It's not too long. It's two hours. And I don't think it does. I don't think it drags. But 
Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it drags yet, but it, I mean, just be ready that it doesn't move that fast either. Generally speaking, I would probably recommend it because it is a good movie. But if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, watch that first. Yeah, that's what I would say. The two <laughs> scenes in this movie, like I said, I mean, I think it's worth it just for those scenes. And you have to see, the, you have to have, you have to know the movie to see the full frame, full context of it. And I think it's worth it just for those movies, just for those scenes. But definitely Pan's Labyrinth first. Are we good, Farin? I think we're good. I just reviewed my notes. I have nothing else. Thanks for listening to this production of The Twice Over. If you haven't already, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcast, And remember to support us on Patreon or by sharing the podcast with a friend. Feel free to contact us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at The Twice Over or email us at comments at thetwiceover.com. All of the music you heard is from Amerigo Gasway. Check him out on Bandcamp and Spotify. 